Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interaction. So, welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute in London. Uh, this month, it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Michael Blenhassett. Michael is a professor in the Department of Medicine with a cross-appointment to the Department of Biomedical and Molecular Sciences at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, in Canada. So, Michael, uh, many thanks for joining us on the podcast this month and congratulations to you and your co-authors on your paper entitled Analgesia and Mouse Strain Influence Neuromuscular Plasticity in the Inflamed Intestine. So if I could start off by asking you this question, what knowledge has been gained really regarding the pathophysiology of inflammatory bowel disease from studying animal models? That's a great way to actually start this out because I think that animal models have been so valuable to our increased understanding to our understanding at all of IBD and of course to other disease states as well. We know that IBD is remains unfortunately an incurable disease with an unknown etiology and we simply can't do the necessary research work in human patients. Therefore animal models have let us make all of the major advances that we have which have taken us quite far in understanding IBD pathogenesis and in developing better and better treatments. So, for example, in the broadest of terms, animal models let us learn about the uh, intestinal mucosal immune system at at the very start. We then proceeded to uh, develop an understanding of the pathology of acute injury responses and repair mechanisms and to contrast those with chronic inflammation. And to me, chronic inflammation is that which persists in the absence of an identifiable specific stimulus and that really defines IBD. So what types of rodent models for IBD currently exist? There are many models and perhaps if I summarize those uh, efficiently we could say that there could be three types. There, uh, If we call them just three alone, one could be bacterial, another genetic and then perhaps chemical. So if I could just talk about those very briefly, by bacterial models, we might think of uh, models of infection and inflammation, uh, such as the use of Citrobacter rodentium in mice. And you might say, well, there's no clear relevance to IBD. However, it's now well appreciated that there's a disproportionate or dysregulated response to the intestinal microbiome in IBD, and thus basic research into the response to such pathogens as Citrobacter uh, and other luminal bacteria is absolutely essential. Genetic models are obviously perhaps the most defined, most precise models that we have, uh, and they have brought us great insight into IBD and where we've modified gene expression either globally throughout the experimental animal or locally within the intestine. They give us new insight continuously, new pathways, and allow the testing of potential therapies. So for example, the NOD2 mutations which are identified in humans is now studied in mouse models and uh, allow us to analyze the mucosal response to microbial translocation. Um, Mouse models such as the IL-10 knockout which develop normally but then go on to develop colitis. Uh, This is not IBD, 
where IL-10 deficiency alone is not a causal factor. But nonetheless, it's an exceptionally valuable model of IBD, and it allows us to study the role of increased intestinal epithelial permeability in early disease onset. And we could perhaps put the T-cell transfer models into the genetic category, if you allow me, since the genetic alterations are commonly involved in either the donor or the host immune systems. Uh, the last uh, grouping is those of the chemical models, and they're the ones that we use. These are simply ones where a damaging agent of a variety of types can be applied to the intestinal mucosa, usually per rectum, but sometimes by uh, in the diet as well. It typically affects the colon, but not always. These include have included older models such as those with acetic acid, iodoacetate, or indomethacin, but the most common models uh, in use today are those of the models of dextran sodium sulfate, DSS, or trinitrobenzene sulfonic acid, TNBS, and these both induce colitis. They're very different, as we'll see. Although you've touched on this slightly already, what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of these uh, models? That's really not possible to answer without knowing what the uh, the goal, the scope, and the focus of the research is, because that model will be specific and applicable to whatever the goal of the research is. Uh, each model offers unique aspects that uh, allow mechanisms and interactions to be studied and dissected. So, for example, you could choose those that look at barrier function in the epithelium, and you might choose either Citrobacter for epithelial challenge, uh, by uh, bacteria, or uh, you could use TMBS or DSS models of colitis. So it has to depend on uh, what the researcher is trying to study. Uh, the values can be dissected in this way. Uh, the two models, the chemical models that I referred to, do offer parallels to ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease respectively, and so those are particular strengths. And in this, uh, the DSS model, when given to mice, leads to a colitis that primarily affects the mucosal epithelium, and it has a mixed Th1, Th2 immunological profile that is a, a good approach to ulcerative colitis. So in contrast, in the TNBS model, uh, installation of TNBS into the colon results over a few days in a strongly Th1 polarized, relatively severe transmural colitis with some aspects of chronic inflammation that is a good model for Crohn's disease. And in particular, it allows us to, uh, in, in our lab, to pursue some aspects of the inflammation associated with stricture formation. So both these models uh, are appropriate to the goals that we use them for. And that has to be kept in mind when we evaluate use of models. So what were the objectives of your study? Our objective, our main objective, is fairly simple in that we set out to, to assess the effect of analgesia on models of IBD in mice. And the, the background to that is that uh, I was working with the university veterinarian, Andrew Winterborn, and we're both well aware of the ethical requirement to provide analgesia to animals that experience pain in research procedures. However, at the same time, it's certain that human patients with IBD would also experience visceral or intestinal pain and very likely do receive analgesics for this, separately or perhaps in combination with other medications. So therefore, we looked at the functional outcomes of analgesia in IBD models using mice. In uh, the background of this is that intestinal pain is particularly difficult to treat in humans and in research animals due to the lack of specific agents 
one of the most commonly used analgesics in animal veterinary practice is buprenorphine, which is a mixed partial agonist of the mu opioid receptor. It's a good analgesic in general terms, but those receptors are also prominent on the enteric nervous system of the intestine. And it's well known that opioid antagonists act to suppress intestinal function, giving rise to constipation in humans. It's a particular problem with morphine and its analogs. However, there's also interesting evidence that activation of the mu opioid system is beneficial in several models of intestinal disease. So Andrew Winterboard and I worked together to evaluate two drugs, buprenorphine that I referred to, uh, and we contrasted that with tramadol, which has a mixed mode of action. It's got less effect on the opioid system. And we use doses that are well-established in both humans and experimental animals, and uh, testing them in the two uh, models that I referred to of chemically induced colitis, but also using two different mouse strains, CD1 and BALB-C. We also had some helpful input from uh, Nader Gassimlu here, who's a pain specialist. So what was different in our study was that uh, we had an in-depth focus focus on inflammatory outcomes in the neuromuscular layers, the deeper layers, where the pathology is more complex uh, than the perhaps more fundamental damage and restitution of events in the epithelium alone. So what we did then was set out to correlate strain and model-specific outcomes of colitis with analgesic approaches. What were the methods that you used in your study? The methods were fairly straightforward. It, it got relatively complex because of the possible combinations, but we used daily dosings of each of the analgesics on each of the two mouse strains with each of the two models, the so DSS and TMBS. And we euthanized them, the mice, at uh, endpoints appropriate to each model. To evaluate what happened to the mice both before and after euthanasia, uh, we used disease activity indices and these had multiple levels. We used uh, one score for animal health, things like general wellness, weight, activity, motility index, and also macroscopic and microscopic scores uh, of tissue obtained after euthanasia. Some of the more specific techniques we used were ELISAs for cytokines, the pro-inflammatory markers and others. But quantitative evaluation of histology and general pathology was particularly revealing. There's also a focus on the uh, relatively poorly of understood events in the deeper neuromuscular layers, which is my research specialty. And there we used uh, immunofluorescence, immunocytochemistry to evaluate two things. Uh, first was smooth muscle cell number and the hyperplasia that occurs in the inflamed intestine, but also damage the enteric nervous system. And we looked for loss of neurons, which we've described, as well as damage to the axons of the enteric nervous system, where these axons run amongst the smooth muscle cells in the circular muscle layer. So what were your key results? The first uh, result was um, quite striking and quite encouraging which was that analgesia had no detectable effect on any parameter in the control mice. However, while this suggested that it might not affect GI parameters, uh, we found that both agents did have quite profound effects in both models and in both strains. And these were quite striking. So there's a couple of general comments that I can make. The first is that buprenorphine improved outcomes in DSS. Now, that's definitely a problem since this is an anti-inflammatory effect, and this could clearly influence other purposes of study. While the tissue ELISAs showed 
that the pro-inflammatory cytokines went up in DSS or in TMBS, as they should, uh, the analgesics didn't affect this. But nonetheless, in the DSS model in particular, there was significant reduction of tissue damage and of MPO, the marker of inflammatory infiltrate, which shows this anti-inflammatory effect. Now, in contrast to uh, buprenex or buprenorphine, tramadol did not cause these changes. Buprenorphine was anti-inflammatory, tramadol was not, so we have drug-specific outcomes. The uh, TMBS model showed the most profound effects of analgesia on the general parameters. And in the TMBS model, we found that buprenorphine caused such a rapid decline in health status that we hit, say, endpoints and euthanized the mice, stopping that study before achieving study goals. And uh, we had seen this earlier, which is why we were suspicious of this effect and very sensitive to its uh, happening. So we stopped further use of uh, buprenorphine in TMBS. But again, in contrast, tramadol had no significant effects on the course of TMBS. So that led us to the first conclusion, which is that we cannot recommend the use of uh, buprenorphine in TMBS, uh, whereas tramadol appears suitable to both models. The specifics of analgesia and mouse strain were quite interesting indeed when we looked at the outcomes of damage to the enteric nervous system, so uh, quantitative research outcomes. And we've evaluated and described these before, and they're part of uh, our increasingly my translational research. So for example, years ago we showed that TMBS causes the death of myenteric neurons in the affected colon of the rat. And just recently we pursued this to show that this neuronal death is a consequence of high levels of nitric oxide production that occur very early in the course of disease, but can be prevented by antagonists to inducible nitric oxide synthase in vivo. So clearly this is a model that could be very sensitive to input from unexpected sources such as analgesia. So what we did was re-examine this, uh, looking at the effects of buprenorphine and DSS and both analgesics and TMBS in the two mouse strains. So the first major parameter that we looked at was smooth muscle growth. And this is what gives rise to the thickened bowel wall and inflammation in humans and in experimental animals. And it was a common feature of DSS colitis. However, the CD1 mice were relatively low responders, which speaks to strain differences. However, this effect, the thickening of the bowel wall due to muscle growth, cell, smooth muscle cell growth, was significantly suppressed by buprenorphine again, but not by tramadol. So this might again argue for an anti-inflammatory effect. The changes to the enteric nervous system were uh, really quite distinct between the two analgesics. So first, uh, in the DSS model, there, were no, there was no loss of myenteric neurons in any combination or at any time. And that reflects the relatively mild nature of the DSS compared to the uh, relatively severe nature of TMBS colitis, as we've shown before. So there's a difference between these models. However, in DSS, buprenorphine inhibited a general regenerative response amongst the neurons uh, sorry, amongst the axons, not the neurons. Uh, axon no number normally increases to innervate the increased number of smooth muscle cells after inflammation is underway. And it did so here in untreated and in tramadol-treated C mice. However, buprenorphine prevented this response. And that's an important one in neuroplasticity to restore homeostasis. So again, buprenorphine has significant effects on these outcomes, while tramadol did not. 
in the TMBS model, we use just BALB-C mice and uh, only with or without tramadol having ended the buprenorphine study. And this was, uh, the outcome of this was really reassuring that we could provide analgesia in this model. The smooth muscle growth proceeded with inflammation as it should and giving tramadol to the animals did not affect this. Neurons were lost, approximately 40% of the neurons were lost in the TMBS model alone and not influenced by giving tramadol. Axon damage, which in this relatively severe model is significant, were lost similarly with or without analgesia. So this led us to uh, endorse the conclusion that you can give an appropriate analgesia in an appropriate model of uh, IBD. So what were the limitations of your study? Well, the limitations are, of course, the things that you'd really like to do, but don't perhaps have the time or real justification to pursue. But one thing that is a limitation is that I have no knowledge of the specifics of the pharmacology of buprenorphine and why in particular and how it led to the changes that it did. So the neuropharmacology of that would be very interesting to add to this paper. Uh, we did not do a direct measurement of the redu reduction in visceral somatic or somatic pain in these animals. However, we used standard dosing where it was well validated, so that may be not an issue. Uh, I guess like any research study, it would have been desirable to add additional mouse strains, more time points and consideration of recovery, but this would have used more mice and might not have really changed the, message, the messages that we obtained. So how do your results take the field forward? Um, there's probably a couple of obvious conclusions. First is that analgesia is critical, both obviously for control of pain, but also for the outcomes of experimental intestinal inflammation and potentially uh, for the treatment of intestinal inflammation in IBD in humans. So this, this raises the question that, is it possible that ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease as we model them using DSS and TMBS respectively, is it possible that these diseases are distinct in their optimal analgesia? That is, should we be perhaps treating those differently or at least have a much better understanding of how analgesics could interact with these inflammatory processes? So this is going to be significant to the researcher who is obligated to control the pain that may arise from their experimental treatments but it could also affect the clinician or researcher who's aware that should be aware that prescribed analgesics might be influencing the disease that they treat in ways that are at the moment unsuspected. Sure, and I think that's the experience that certainly um, some opiates can cause uh, immunosuppression and uh, indeed uh, can uh, lead to opioid-induced uh, hyperalgesia. So, Michael, with that, I'd like to sincerely thank you and your co-authors for a really uh, excellent paper. Uh, and for also assisting in this month's podcast and our listeners for tuning in. And I look forward to welcoming you for another instalment uh, next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.